Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Paul Carden. His last name is spelled C-A-R-D-I-N. He comes to us from the UK. He just published a book, March 2022. Title of the book is Return to Bomb Alley, 1982, The Falklands Deception. And Paul was involved in that event that happened about 40 years and a month uh, ago. So 40, four decades ago was when the conflict started. But Paul is now a busy activist and blogger based in the United Kingdom. As a Falklands veteran, he decided it was time to write about his concerns over Margaret Thatcher's 1982 recapture of the islands. And this is the detailed account that's included in this book. He was also, as a UK employee, he was the target of two attempts to sack him from his job. He came through victorious both times and retired at age 50 in 2009, securing his pension. He's helping others who've been bullied or intimidated in the workplace something I can relate to. Also ran a tr transcription company, which has been trading since 2010. He's married with two young daughters and lives in Wallasey, Merseyside, UK, right across from Liverpool. So Paul Carden, welcome to the show. Thanks, William. And so people, uh, maybe <clears throat> my well, most of my audience is in the United States. Can you talk about your background, how you got involved in the uh, military, in, in sailing, and... Uh, what led you, or how, how this process began that led to the Falklands conflict? Yeah, sure. Um, if I go right back to um, as a 10-year-old child here here in Wallasey, uh, I was born in Wallasey, um, we, had, we used to have a, a TV program called Blue Peter. Now, this was on BBC television. And um, there was a, a daredevil on there by the name of John Noakes. And he used to do all these crazy stunts and uh, he'd take camera crews with him. And I switched Blue Peter on one day and um, just in the back room there, and he came on and he'd taken a camera crew down to a, a naval training base uh, called HMS Ganges. Now, this was on the east coast of England uh, in Suffolk. And the reason he'd taken the camera crew was because down there, on this shore base, there was a huge sailing mast that they built from two, two old sailing ships. And this thing was about 140 feet tall. Now, every year, they used to get about 80 uh, trainee sailors, dress them in their uniforms, and then they'd climb to the top of the mast very slowly. I mean, they wouldn't get away with it these days. It'd be so dangerous. But back then, you could do it. And uh, John Noakes... Um, started climbing the mast with all these sailors and I was just wow what's going on here you know and, and then I watched them climbing up and then the bravest of those young boys got right to the very top and at the top of the mast if you can picture it there was a wooden disc um, about a foot in diameter and this young sailor clambered up onto the top with John Noakes next to him and this young lad stood to attention and saluted like, like that and I was just amazed, and I thought, wow. And I think that sort of planted the seed for me, and I thought, wow, I think I want to do that. I want to join the Royal Navy. So six years later, I did at age 16 and a half, you know, and uh, I made the journey down there to HMS Ganges, and I did my basic training down there. That was in 1976, in February 76. And the reason I joined the Navy is because I didn't fancy joining the army because of what was going on in Northern Ireland at that time. I thought, ironically, I thought I'll stay safe, you know? Right. Interesting. 
because all the troubles, right? Yeah, that's right. And so you, it also gives you, it's the same thing here in the States. It gives kind of younger men the opportunity to get training and see the world, right? So you traveled through the Mediterranean. Can you yeah. talk about all the places you went to? And you kind of kept a diary too, right? And you include that in the book. I kept a diary uh, when the conflict started or just before the conflict started. But uh, jumping back, um, my first ship was HMS Plymouth. And I flew out to Gibraltar to join that in uh, about November 1976. And we, we did quite a bit of traveling on HMS Plymouth. In 1978, we went over to uh, Canada, Newfoundland, uh, Nova Scotia. And then we came down the East Coast and we visited New York. Then we went down to Boston, Massachusetts. And for me, this was just all of us. It, it, it was great. I mean, we had to work as well. I was a radio operator at the time. So I was very busy in the in the radio room working away, but we had time off at the weekends. And when we were in ports, we would go traveling and um, we'd hire a car and we'd all go off and uh, we'd, we'd have a great time as sailors do sort of thing, you know. And then we also traveled all around the Mediterranean. So we took in um, France, Italy, and we took in Malta as well in 1978. And... Uh, I was really enjoying it. And then um, fast forward a little bit and we come to sort of uh, early 1982. And we were off on a, a Far East deployment. Um, so we were all on a high over that. You know, we were really looking forward to it. We were going out to Singapore and Malaysia and lots of other sort of exotic locations, you know, and... Um, we were in Gibraltar and the news came through that um, the Falkland Islands had been invaded. And I've got to be honest and say, I didn't know where they were. And I think 99% of our crew, you know, there's about 240 men on our ship. And I'd say the majority of them didn't, <laughs> The one, even the ones who had heard of the Falkland Islands probably didn't know where they were sort of thing. And then we we sailed. We were gonna we sailed off on our deployment, and we were sort of halfway across the Mediterranean, and uh, we were a few days out of Naples. And then I was a leading radio operator by this time. And one one night, I think it was about on the fifth of March, I was stood in front of the teleprinter, and a, a flash message started coming through, and I ripped it off, read it, and it said basically, "Turn around." Go back to Gibraltar, refuel, rearm, take on stores, and then join the HMS Hermes Battle Group in the South Atlantic, then proceed down to Ascension Island, then proceed to the Falkland Islands. So that was it. I was the first person on our ship so to realise that we weren't going on this deployment that we'd all been so keyed up about. And I thought, what should I do with this message? <laughs> you know? I mean, Gibraltar's in the south of Spain, right? And then Ascension is really just a dot, an island in the middle of the Atlantic between South America and Africa, right? And then that's right. Yeah, Falklands and it's kind of the equator. Yeah, and Falkland Islands of South America has something different than North America. Maybe the dispute between the U.S. and Mexico, but there's all kinds of land and border disputes in South America. They fought battles over many of the states and issues of land. I think there's still even. I think you mentioned in your book there's a dispute between the very bottom islands just south of 
of Argentina between Argentina and Chile. So Argentina's always had kind of a claim to the Falklands, right? Yeah, they have. It, 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 it began. It began in the uh, early nineteenth century, I think, when Britain settled down. Set, Britain actually settled in the Falkland Islands. It, it had been previously owned by Spain. Uh, that they had governed it for a while, and then Britain took it over in about eighteen forty. And from that point, and from the point when Argentina got their independence from Spain, that was when the um, the animosity um, sort of started and um, Argentina wanted those islands and they did approach the UN and uh, the United Nations and stated that Britain is had acted um, it was a colonial desire to want those islands nothing more but because they were so close to Argentina they had a better claim over them but um, that that was proceeding from the, the 1970s sort of thing and it didn't really get anywhere because the Falkland Islanders the, the, the British government decided that the Falkland Islanders would have the last say on um, whether whether they wanted to be ruled by Argentina and because they didn't want to be then that was that 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 was a sort of sticking point and it's, it's very rural, right? It's not very populated, more sheep than people. And yeah, it's yeah, uh, in right. the South yeah. Sea, it's kind of cold. And, and I don't know, I don't know what the weather's like there, but well, the weather is really cold down there. Yeah. Sort of, I think June onwards, it gets really cold, you know, uh, June, July, August, and then possibly September. September, it starts to pick up. The heat starts picking up again, but the original invasion was planned for September uh, by Argentina, but it got sort of uh, <laughs> it was it was ruined by this um, scrap metal company that went over to South Georgia um, and raised an Argentinian flag, and that got back to the UK, and they were sort of alerted by this an Argentinian desire to invade, you know, and uh, they had to bring forward the invasion after that. Right. So they invaded and it just, uh, it set off kind of a huge response in, in the UK, right? Can you talk about how Thatcher yeah. responded and Thatcher? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Margaret Thatcher as a person too? Of course. Yeah. Um, she was, in, she was elected in uh, May, 1979. And back then, I can even remember it myself, I was sort of eight, 17, 18, something like that. And um, there was a bit, there was a lot of excitement, I've got to be honest, about the prospect of the first woman prime minister, the first female prime minister in the UK. So um, a lot of w female voters thought, this will make a nice change, you know. <laughs> With hindsight, they might not be thinking that, but uh, back then they, they didn't know, and they thought, well, "Yeah, let's give her, let's give her a try." And she was voted in, and she, I think she had about a thirty-seat majority, which uh, so was not not a huge majority, but um, she got in, and she was on a high. And then I think the first sort of major incident uh, to occur uh, came in nineteen eighty, sort of April May nineteen eighty. And this was a, a siege in the Iranian embassy in London. Now, um, about 20 hostages were taken and um, Mrs. Thatcher decided to send the SAS in to, to resolve it. 
So the SAS were sent in and they occupied the surrounding buildings and eventually the order was given to go and they went in and they managed to rescue all of the hostages alive, apart from one who'd been killed uh, prior to the um, order to go. Um, so that, uh, that, that was a big success for Mrs. Thatcher and she was on a high at that point. But the only direction she should go, she could go after that was downwards, and she did go down. Basically, it started with her economic policies, which were monetarist. So these were sort of influenced by Milton Friedman and Alan Walters, and they were very unforgiving for working class people. Um, so they started to feel the impact of those economic policies straight away. So we had unemployment, which was which got to sort of 3 million very quickly. And we had an inflation rate, which was double what it is now in the UK. It was like 18%. So uh, Mrs. Thatcher thought she could fix this by uh, increasing taxes, which is what she did against the advice of lots of um, senior economic people. They said, don't do that because the the manufacturing base is going to be impacted and industry will be affected. But she just carried on with it. And, you know, there was this phrase, the lady is not for turning and this lady wasn't for turning and she wasn't listening to anybody and she carried on. And before you knew it, we had um, coal mines closing, we had steel plants closing and all sorts of uh, manufacturing uh, because it was basically decimated, you know by Mrs. Thatcher. And very quickly, between April and July of 1980, we had um, riots breaking out in all the major cities in the UK, so in London, in Manchester, in Liverpool, in Birmingham, there were riots everywhere. And um, Mrs. Thatcher's, come, come the end of 1981, Mrs. Thatcher's approval rating was down at 23%, which is actually the lowest approval rating on record for any UK prime minister. And at, by this time, um, her own people were starting to get very restless. And we had between 30 and 40 MPs who wanted her out. They wanted a new face. And this was enough enough MPs um, to make the government fall if she made the wrong move. So she needed something to turn her fortunes around. Um, and I can I can now go into what was going on behind the scenes. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So because it's interesting, your book. Most people would never hear this. I've never heard in the states. She is negotiating earlier saying the Falklands are not uh, valuable. And this is kind of the decolonization, the end of the decolonization post-war, World War II movement in Britain, yeah. right? So British Honduras, uh, Falklands, all uh, India. So lot, just so many. Uh, yeah, lots of countries have gained their independence. And, and, yeah. and the, the British government under, under Labour and then under uh, the Conservatives wanted to carry that on. But like I said before, the sticking point was the the wishes of the islanders. They never wanted to do that. So, uh, but there wasn't much coverage of this in the UK. I, I can remember this. It, it, the press didn't really go near it, so nobody got to know where the Falkland Islands were, 
or what the wishes of the Falkland Islanders were. And Mrs. Thatcher, straight after the invasion, she was saying, the wishes of the Falkland Islanders are paramount. And she kept repeating that. Every time there was a camera placed in front of her, she kept repeating it again and again and again ad nauseum. But she never mentioned it once before the invasion, which is very telling, you know, in my opinion. But um, if I could just um, give you the background to what was going on. Uh, she'd been involved with uh, General Galtieri and the Hunter uh, doing trade deals um, um, in, in 1980, 1981. And the Falkland Islanders didn't know about this and were sort of left out in the cold. And um, the other thing was she was selling arms to the hunter. Um, I mean, governments always sell arms between each other, but even when this, um, even with the, um, the en enmity between the two nations, they were still selling arms. And they were actually selling ships. A couple of Type 42 destroyers got sold in the 1970s um, to Argentina, which were used in the war. And this, this arms trading didn't stop until four days before the invasion itself. So, so that's um, around March the 28th, 29th. Uh, that was when the last deal, the last arms deal was done. You know, It's amazing. And, and, and another big one was in... 1980, Mrs. Thatcher sent a foreign minister by the name of Nicholas Ridley to go and meet um, Argentina's Deputy Foreign Secretary in Switzerland. This was in Geneva in a place called the Hotel du Lac, a big posh hotel. And it was absolutely top secret. Um, nobody could breathe a word about this. Um, and what was on what was on the agenda was um, a 99 year lease back deal between Britain and Argentina very similar to what was done between Britain and Hong Kong uh, if you remember that that expired in 1997 and um, uh, the governor of Hong Kong Chris Patton very reluctantly uh, handed Hong Kong back to China um, but this was going to be a similar deal. Um, and un under the sort of auspices of this deal, uh, every flagpole flag in uh, the Falkland Islands would have a Union flag and beneath it an Argentinian flag. That was the plan. But Mr. Ridley um, had to go and put this proposal to the Falkland Islanders who we know uh, were not going to be very receptive to it. And he went down there and he, he put the proposals to him and he gave him gave him his chance to, to speak. But when he finished speaking, they basically gave him the bums rush and they sent him on his way. They weren't listening. They weren't going to... Um, they didn't like the idea of um, an Argentinian flag flying on, on the flag masts in the uh, Falkland Islands. And... And this was only recently publicized, right? So this was under no. That, that was actually that was public at the time because it, it did go back to Parliament and MPs threw it out as well. So that that was known, but um, the things that weren't known were the arms deals, uh, the trade deals, and something else that was known was defence cuts. We had these sweeping defence cuts in 1981. 
And this the, these defence cuts upset um, the first Sea Lord, who was Admiral Sir Henry Leach, um, because they impacted the Navy in a very big way. He would have lost two uh, aircraft carriers, one of which was Ark Royal. I can't remember the other one, but he would have lost two of his aircraft carriers. He would have had no aircraft carriers. So um, he responded to Miss Thatcher and sent her a letter saying, look, um, I need a Navy that can react at the drop of a hat. It's got to be able to respond if there's an incident somewhere. We've got to go and uh, send our ships and be able to react. And uh, um, But Mrs. Thatcher wasn't listening to him. She wouldn't even give him the time of day. She wouldn't meet him. And then Lord Carrington, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, he said he, he noticed that um, HMS Endurance was going to be decommissioned. Now, that ship was the guard ship for the Falkland Islands. So that was a presence there that, that the Falkland Islanders could look at and think, they do care about us, you know, they've got they've got a ship there to, to react if anything happens. And Lord Carrington said, um, not only is it a defensive, um, not, not only is it a piece of defence that we've got that ship there, it's also a political statement to say that we care about the wishes of the islanders and we care about protecting them. But she didn't listen to Lord Carrington. And uh, four days after the invasion, he resigned the 6th of April, 1982. So she's just plowing on like this. And pretty soon the Argentinians pick up on this and they notice that, you know, it just looks like um, Mrs. Thatcher doesn't care about these islands at all, you know. And um, very late on in, in about February or March uh, 1982, the British Embassy in uh, Buenos Aires sent a cable to Mrs. Thatcher saying that the press in um, Argentina were talking about the prospect of the islands coming back to them. So the Argentinian people got to see that something was afoot, you know, and they, they sort of got the, the idea that Mrs. Thatcher didn't care about those islands or Britain didn't care about those islands. And they were probably prepared to see them um, see them go, you know. Right. So and, they had that thing. It's almost like the same thing happened between Iraq and Kuwait. Here yeah. in the States. There was all mm -hmm. kinds of signals, oh, Kuwait doesn't matter. And That's it's right. almost like the same thing happened. I mean, it's all played through. It was sending very clear signals to Argentina. And I think General Galtieri, um, it wasn't just this idea that he could have a distraction uh, from his economic uh, failure, you know. Um, he, he, was, probably, he was he was a military. Probably thought, he probably thought I could invade there and it's not going to be contested. They're not going to react, and I'll be able to walk away with those islands, and my people will love it, you know. But that didn't happen, as we know. Right. I mean, so they were thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be a cakewalk and uh, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. walk in the park. So you're being sent. You come out of Gibraltar, Ascension, going south. And, I mean, the conflict got pretty intense, didn't it? I mean, there were a lot. You say 907 yeah. people died, right? Well, there were, there were 900 plus died, yes. There were 255 British and 700 plus uh, Argentinians died. And three civilians, which it sounds very small these days after you know what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, but um, three civilians died. 
through friendly fire actually um but um to pick, to pick up from the, the sort of start as we were sailing south there were peace proposals being made um and alexander haig uh, the, the secretary of state the american secretary of state he was the go-between between the two nations um and peace proposals were coming and going well, we were seeing them. I was seeing them because I was I was um, I was in charge of the starboard watch radio team, so that was me and six guys. Um, we would have BBC World Service on, and to be honest, we, we used to get more information coming out of the radio, the, the World Service, than we did from the equipment that was around us. You know, sometimes, but we'd 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 be monitoring these peace proposals and watching them come and go and. Um, to be honest, uh, both governments were using them um, as a means to sort of pretend they were listening and but sort of arming at the same time, you know, all that was going on. And there was one very important peace proposal that um, came to fruition at the end of April. So this was just before the Belgrano was sunk um, and it was a Peruvian peace proposal. Um, it came from President Belond in, in Peru, and he called uh, Charles Wallace to his office. That was the American, that was the uh, UK ambassador. He had a seven-point peace plan, which he gave to Charles Wallace, and Charles Wallace sent it by telegram to the UK, to London, on the first of May. Now the set, now on the second of May the Belgrano was sunk and Mrs. Thatcher was later challenged on TV on, on, on a program called Nationwide by a lady called Diana Gould who said what who asked Mrs. Thatcher why did you not respond to the telegram that had been sent the day before and Mrs. Thatcher responded by saying she hadn't received the telegram until after the attack and then people sort of in the know worked out that she hadn't received the telegram for 17 hours. Now, we know telegrams take seconds to arrive. And I knew that as a radio operator. So I've never seen, I've never seen an acceptable reason for the delay. She must have known about that peace proposal, but she didn't publicly react to it or respond. And then the next thing you know, the Belgrano is being sunk, is be, being sunk with the loss of 300 uh, plus lives. And that's controversial too, because yeah, the UK put in an exclusion zone. Nobody comes inside of this zone, and the Belgrana was outside of that, right? Yeah, that's right. She was outside, and she'd been she'd actually been sailing away from the task force, away from the Falkland Islands, and on a westerly course for fourteen hours. Um, okay, she could change course at. at any moment and start going the other way and start going back towards the task force but she'd never done that and and she was torpedoed by the um the conqueror hms conqueror and sunk but there's there's another um story around this as well which is um rear admiral sandy woodward was the guy in in charge of operation corporate which which was all of the ships, all of the UK ships down in the South Atlantic. And he answered to a guy called Admiral Fieldhouse, who was based in Northwood in London. 
So Admiral Fieldhouse was in overall charge, but Rear Admiral Woodward was in charge of the ships and the planes. Now, Rear Admiral Woodward, uh, 10 years after the Falklands, eventually published a book called The Hundred Days. And inside that book, he told us about a pincer movement that was developing um, at the time, so on the 1st of May. Now, the pincer, the, the pincer if you can imagine, uh, where's my hands? Sorry, where are we? <laughs> everything's, opposite. everything's opposite but there's the pincer right the sort of northern claw of the pincer was an argentinian aircraft carrier called the vincentento de mayo or the 25 de mayo that's the northern claw that was about 150 to 200 miles away from the task force the southern claw of the pincer was the Belgrano. That was 350 miles away from the task force on the 2nd of May. Now, the I need to talk about the armaments of each vessel. So the southern ship, the Belgrano, had 15 six-inch guns. And the Belgrano had been built in uh, the Second World War. It was a former U.S. Uh, vessel, USS Phoenix. It was there at Pearl, Pearl Harbor, and it survived that. But it was later sold to Argentina and became the, um, the ARA Belgrano. 15 six-inch guns, 10 five-inch guns, so it really packed a punch. You know, it, uh, back, back in the Second World War, during the, those sea battles you used to have, it could have knocked knocked hell out of any ship that came within range of those guns now it was 350 miles away and the range of its guns was 14 miles so it needed to reduce that distance by 336 miles to become a clear and present threat to us okay it's now, not even close it wasn't it's close, close at all and it was sailing away as well it, um, when it was sunk now the aircraft carrier um, on the 1st of May, that was, like I say, 150 to 200 miles away from uh, us or the task force. Um, it had six Skyhawk bombers uh, planes on it. Now, they had a battle radius of 700 miles, so they could fly 350 miles, drop their bombs and come back 350 miles and land safely on the aircraft carrier. But, now this is a very big but, on the 1st of May, if I went, if I left the radio room and went up top and had a look and scanned the horizon, it was absolutely flat. It was like a big blue billiard table. Absolutely like that. Now, the problem with that is any aircraft carrier needs to be sailing into a headwind of force three, four or five or higher in order to give its planes the uplift under the wings. Now these, you've got to think, you've got to remember that these planes are heavily laden. Each Skyhawk has got four 500 pound bombs. So each plane is, uh, has got an extra 2000 pound of weight on it. Now the captain, didn't even give any orders to those planes to take off when they were within range. And there was a very good reason. They would have gone 
up the ramp and just into the sea. There's no way they could have got into the air in those conditions. So I think when Admiral Woodward eventually told us about this threat 10 years later, you know, which I've got questions about that anyway, but when he eventually told us about this threat, I think he'd made a mis- either made a mistake or was telling fibs, you know, uh, because he's obviously a very clever man and he knows the capability of his enemy. And he would have known that those planes could not have taken off on that day. Whereas his planes could have taken off because he had vertical takeoff and landing sea harriers, you know, so he could have he could have sent his uh, his planes off, but um, the Argentinians couldn't have on that day. Right. So there's a lot of sketchy things that happen in that conflict. And yeah. why did you call the the book? Can you reference why you called the title of your book "Return to Bomb Alley"? Because. <clears throat> Bomb Alley is is um, was the nickname for San Carlos Water, and my ship HMS Yarmouth spent two weeks in Bomb Alley. So we spent two weeks being bombed by uh, Skyhawks and Mirages and, and uh, Daggers, uh, all the Argentinian planes that came over um, that were coming over for, for a two week period, and so that became known as Bomb Alley. Um, that's why. I mean, there was a lot of bombs being dropped on ships, and I mean, the conflict was really something. It was kind of like a modern conflict exercise. And you even mentioned the possibility that the UK moved nukes into place, right, or into the area. Yeah, well, it wasn't a possibility. They did. They did do they did. that. They did do it. Okay. There were thirty-one nuclear uh, depth charges um, carried by our, our vessels. Uh, that. It only became known in January of this year, so just just less than forty years it took for that information to come out. I mean, the Ministry of Defence and the governments were being questioned about that, but their position was always not to say anything. So they basically said, uh, "We can't comment." You know, that's all they ever said. But we eventually found out that uh, these nuclear uh, depth charges were being carried, and I, I did hear them being talked about. Um, they weren't referred to as nuclear weapons, though. I only heard to them, heard about them being referred to as the thousand-pound bomb. So, and I thought my, my sort of uh, ears went up, and I thought, well, "Why are they talking about the thousand-pound bomb?" You know. And eventually, it became clear uh, that it, it it must have been these nuclear depth charges, and we still don't know to this day whether any ships carrying the thousand pound bomb was sunk, you know, whether HMS Sheffield had any on or whether HMS Antelope had any on. We, we really, or Coventry, we, we still don't know. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you, there was a treaty, the Telco treaty, no nukes in the area. So that That's was right. it. We, we were a signatory to that. So we were breaching that treaty. Right. And also I wasn't, I wasn't, um, uh, the head wasn't there. Wasn't Galtieri involved in Operation Condor too? So, like he there was. was oh, okay. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, back in the, in the seventies, uh, Kissinger and Nixon uh, got their heads together and decided that they would have a drive to remove what they called the communist influence in South America. And this was Operation Condor, and um, lots of countries, Brazil. Um, Argentina, and lots of others um, 
In Argentina, it was known as the Dirty War, and basically they would knock on the door of sus suspected uh, communists in the middle of the night, drag them off to be uh, tortured and killed and probably buried in shallow graves. Um, this is back in the 1970s and in the early 80s. And it went on for quite a few years and tens of thousands of people were killed. And um, I mean, Henry Kissinger is still on the loose now. He, I spotted him the other day at Davos, you know, so people are still giving him a lot of respect when he should be behind bars, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, the overthrow of Allende, overthrow of Allende in Chile, too, yeah. was part of that whole thing. That was the first 9-11. That was That's in the early right. 70s, yeah. So yeah. the Galtieri was part of that whole thing. And it, the yeah. Thatcher, like you stated in your book, she benefited from the victory, right? Like she played it for uh, domestic uh, benefit. She right? did. She, she did. Um because she'd managed to hide all the hidden things had been hidden for the next 30 years. So they didn't come out until 2012. And even then, uh, I was talking earlier about telegrams. Um, I noticed while I was researching the book that all incoming telegrams from the South American continent have been embargoed until the year 2052. So they basically banged another 40 years on top of that now i think that telegram i was talking about about um that was sent with that had a 17 hour delay i think that's going to be one of them because that will have time stamps on it for when it was sent and when it was received and that will be that will give everything away so i think what they're doing there is they're protecting mrs thatcher's legacy which came in for a bit of a battering as you'll know when it was it was discovered that she was meeting at, a person called Jimmy Savile. Uh, she was inviting him to uh, Checkers. Now, Checkers, for your viewers, is uh, the home, the the country home of the UK Prime Minister since 1921. So, Mrs. Thatcher was meeting Jimmy Savile, and she met him 11 times. And I've worked out that she must have met him in 1979, right through until 1990. You know, the all all those 11 new years she was meeting this fella and he was a paedophile he was a child rapist and a necrophiliac and she was she didn't just have savile as one of her close friends she had uh, chili's general pinochet as a very close friend as well know you know and she never criticized pinochet for his involvement in uh, operation condor he, he was um, disappearing uh, tens of thousands of his own citizens along with Galtieri. And Mrs. Thatcher never, ever criticized these people. She just said nothing about it. They were really brutal. Pinochet was super, was incredibly brutal in that takeover, yeah. the September 11th takeover. I thought it was 72. Mm. Um, but, yeah. So, I mean, this is all taking place in that environment. Galtieri probably propped up by the CIA, the U.S. And yeah. he's destroyed by this conflict right this is pretty much the nail in the coffin for him right it was he was only he was only um the country's leader for a year you know between 1981 and 1982 and eventually he ended up in prison um and i think died shortly after yeah right yeah so and then thatcher came out great and was the, the the falklands to this day are still uk property correct that's right, yeah, and along with Ascension Island, which is UK property. Um, Ascension Island has got a huge airstrip on it, um, 
and we could never have pulled off this um, uh, this victory without Ascension Island, you know. Um, and th that's how it remains now. Uh, the population back in 1982 of the Falkland Islands was just 1,800 people. And even back then, I, I was only 22, and I was thinking, why are we sending 30,000 sailors, soldiers, and airmen, airmen to rescue 1,800 people who we'd never heard about? You know, it didn't really make sense to me. And then I'm, later on, when I'm researching the book, I'm discovering things like um, Mrs. Thatcher's husband, Dennis, was actually a director of the Falkland Islands Company. And that was an undeclared interest, which never came out until way after, um, you know, the victory and the return of the Conservative government. And the, the I think I, I, I sent uh, some information to you, which, which uh, talked about 90% um, of the Falkland Islands land, including all the sheep farms, was actually owned by absentee landlords who were based in the UK. So when Mrs. Thatcher was going on about uh, all the interests of the Falkland Islanders is paramount, she didn't mention these landlords who actually owned the land. And <laughs> it was obviously their interests that were paramount, but she, she never told us about that. And the BBC and the media never told us about that either, you know. All right, so that's all left out, conveniently left out. Uh, Kindness yeah. King is asking you a question. Paul, what would you say was the biggest deception at play? The biggest deception of, of them all was the, the behaviour of Mrs. Thatcher and her ministers um, behind the veil, you know, which wasn't revealed to the public and, and still hasn't been revealed to this day. We got a certain amount of information in 2012, but I think she basically tempted General Galtieri into a trap and he fell for it. That was the biggest deception of the lot because her behaviour changed completely after after he'd fallen into that trap right so it's just like saddam hussein and uh here in the states and and the invasion of kuwait and all the propaganda yeah. surrounding that and all that stuff yeah. and all the ministers and yeah complex. really and, great discussion yeah anything you'd like to add or anything i missed we're about 40 minutes well um <laughs> there's so much there's so much to go into really um i mean let me just let me just jog my memory <laughs> well have people let's get them to go get the book because you have it all in that book you have all of your notes your diaries included in that you have a first person account of the conflict so it's all there i would definitely recommend people yeah it, it, it's out. all there uh, one other issue i go into is uh, back in the 70s um, I think in about 77 or 78, um, um, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the multinational oil companies did some prospecting in that area. They didn't, they didn't come back with anything positive about oil, but they, some of the geology seemed to indicate that there may be oil there. And since then, we've discovered that there is. But I think that may have swayed Mrs. Thatcher as well um, in her decision to send 30,000 men to rescue 1,800 people. The, the, the possibility that there may have been oil there. Plus there were the strategic um, influences, you know. Uh, we, don't, we don't explore Antarctica, which, which for those who don't know, there's a landmass beneath the ice, at, uh, you know, um, in Antarctica. 
And in that landmass, there, there probably is going to be oil and minerals and it's all beneath the ice and it's beyond reach. But in the future, it, it, could, it could be somewhere that uh, countries will explore. Um, um, and I think Mrs. Thatcher will have had that in mind um, when, when she decided to send the task force down there. Right. And uh, yeah, so the best place to get the book is is on Amazon. Is that correct? There's a Kindle version and a paperback version, right? That's right. It's on Amazon. But if you just go to any um, any web browser and type in the name of the book, Return to Bomb Alley, The Falcon's Deception, or type my name in, um, your page, your screen will fill with, um, there's about 32 different places, including Amazon, where you can where you can get this book, yeah. It's only 168 pages, so it isn't the biggest read. You could probably read it in an hour and a half, but I've packed a lot of information into it. All right, first person, you were there 40 years ago. Yeah. And uh, for people who want to reach out to you to continue the discussion, do you have any social media or email I can put in the show notes? Yeah, um, I do run a blog, and it's it's called Together.blog. That's a WordPress blog, and that, that's been running for about the last eight years. So um, anybody can contact me on that. If you, if you send your email to that, you will get my um, information. And I don't really want to give my email address out don't, here. Don't, don't, don't do it. Uh, yeah. But the, the WordPress is perfect. So we're all in it together is all one word. Correct? No, it's called Wirral. 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 That's no. where I live. Wirral. That's oh, W I. Double R A L Wirral in it together gotcha. dot blog all one word. Great, perfect. Yeah. And again, the title of the book is Return to Bomb Alley, nineteen eighty two: The Falklands Deception, and the author is Paul Carden. So, Paul, thanks yeah. so much for your time. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, William. Take care. Cheers. Stay there. Stay there.